Earlier this month, the Biden administration reached a deal with Iran to release five American hostages. In exchange, the U.S. agreed to freeze several jailed Iranians and unfreeze $6 billion in Iranian assets. The Biden administration claims that this is not a ransom payment and that Iran cannot use the funds to enable its militant ambitions. What does this deal and Biden's approach more generally to Iran reveal about America's foreign policy? Welcome to New Ideal Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. I'm Ankar Gatte, and joining me today is my colleague, Alan Jura. Hi, Alan. Hey, Ankar. I think maybe the place to start is to talk a little bit about the details of this so-called prisoner swap. Maybe you can sure. start us off with that. Yeah, and I think it's, it's interesting to see the different ways in which this is being described. So we're calling it a swap, and there will be reasons for why we do that. But in, another way to think of it, as critics have called it, is this is a ransom deal. Uh, but let's let's look at the details and, and think a bit more about what actually is happening here. So as you said in the introduction, there are five Americans who have dual Iranian American citizenship, who were some of whom were in one of the most notorious prisons in Iran, prison known for brutal treatment of its occupants. And what the deal has promised is not that they're on a plane right now heading to the U.S. And that's not even close to what's happening there. They're being released from that high intensity prison to house arrest. And eventually, assuming this deal doesn't fall apart, they will then be released and allowed to leave the country. When will that happen? When the money clears, basically. So there's, it really all hinges on this large sum of money that's being unfrozen. So what is the, how much money is being talked about here? And some, reco- some reports say it's $6 billion in assets that Iran has uh, managed to acquire and held in a bank, and this is gonna get a little bit complicated, it's, it's in a bank in South Korea, and then it's gonna be moved as part of this deal to a special account in Qatar. And the idea is that it, once the money is in Qatar, the Qatari government will treat it as if it's sort of an, an escrow. And so Iran won't have direct access to it according to the what's been announced. And instead, they will only be able to withdraw money for very narrowly defined, quote unquote, humanitarian uses like medical treatment, medical facilities and uh, materials. And the idea is that this will prevent Iran from using the money for some of its militant ambitions to fund its military, to fund some of its uh, terrorist allies. And one of the statements I heard about this, I think, is revealing and, and worth pausing on comes from a commentator who, as far as I can tell, is sympathetic to the Biden administration's deal. And this is the way it's being sold. So the the Biden administration is insisting this is not ransom because the money belongs to Iran. We're just releasing it to them. And it's not going to be money that the Iranians can use against American interests or American troops in the region. So here's how one of the commentators put it. And I'll quote this. So, quote, if you are against this deal, you are against Americans coming home and you're against Iranian people having access to food and medicine, end quote. So it really is playing on this idea that it's Iran's money and we're just helping the Iranian people. Now, one other thing about this deal that I think is interesting, this is all, the, what I've been describing is the, the perspective of the deal. 
by the administration, which is really pushing hard to to characterize it in the most favorable terms to its uh, uh, goals. Now, if you dig a bit, you can see what the Iranian government thinks of this deal, and that also is revealing. So the, a statement from the Iran Ministry of Foreign Affairs claims that the money involved is not $6 billion, which is already an astronomical figure. It might even be the largest amount of money transferred or exchanged in, a, in one of these swaps. They claim it's $9 billion, and some of that money has already been held in Iraq. Moreover, contrary to what the Biden administration has claimed and what some of the other parties involved in this arrangement claim, Iran government says, well, we'll decide how the money is released and we'll decide how we'll use it. And, and our government is the sole, uh, has autonomy over what to do with this money. Now, the final thing I'll say about this, which is as part of thinking more broadly about this policy and the, the context for it, is that it, it should have been surprising for anyone that Iran has money anywhere to be unfrozen in this way. So Iran is under layers and layers of severe economic sanctions and has been for a long time. So the fact that it's acquired money and held in foreign banks as a result of selling its oil, that already suggests there's problems with whatever sanctions are in place. So it turns out that there's money like this, not only in South Korea, which is the source for the ransom, in effect, for this deal, but there are also accounts in other countries, including India uh, and several others that we know of. And I think this is, this should be troubling. This is already evidence that whatever is already in place with Iran is not really uh, sufficient for what uh, the goals were in terms of preventing it from acquiring more wealth to, to, to fuel its militant ambitions. So that's the deal. It's, it's six billion, maybe nine billion, five Americans, plus we released several Iranian prisoners who are held in American facilities. And I think maybe the question to turn to here is, is this a is this really ransom? Is this a, a legit deal? How do you think of this, Ankar? I think it's obviously ransom, or it's obviously paying Iran to withdraw some of its attacks against U.S. people, U.S. interests. And in that sense, it, it, in the end, it's a detail that it's it, ransom means you're paying, they've taken hostages and you're paying for the hostages release. But, but more broadly, it's Iran has been attacking the U.S. for decades upon decades. Anytime we reach some kind of so-called deal with them, all it amounts to is appeasement. It amounts to We'll pay you off for the time being if you promise to stop attacking us in the next three months. And, so, and then, and they don't even uphold that. And there's no reason to think they would uphold that. But it's it's the it's paying them when they're explicitly our enemy, paying them to say, okay, yeah, we'll pause for uh, half an hour, and then and then who knows what we're going to do. And so, and to the the attempts to present it as something different. I, I found overall from the administration that you quoted one commentator who you think is sympathetic to the administration have been pathetic to the, the attempt to paint this as it's, and it, it like painting it, one of the ways you put it, I mean, quoting the, the person's view, it's like a win-win. It's um, we get people back and they get, the Iranian people get humanitarian aid. So it's like, it's a no. It's they present it like it's a no-brainer. It's a win-win, and it 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 
so obviously is not that. And it just, the idea that, I mean, you can comment on this aspect of it. The idea that you're going to put restrictions on the money that, oh, it's going to be used for humanitarian, and it's not going to go to the regime, it's going to go to the people oppressed by the regime, um, that, I mean, the only word for that, I think, is it's a delusion. Yeah, I, I just want to spell that out a bit. So if, if it, it, that keeps coming up, and it's a very common criticism, and I think it, the fact that it, a lot of people are pointing to it should be is is further evidence that this is a nonsensical approach. So if people outside of this context who don't have specialized knowledge are saying, well, if they get money and they can use it for their hospitals, that just means they can move money around from what would have gone to the hospital to militant goals, right? So it's like household accounting and household budgeting. If you know you're not going to spend it here, you can move it to something else. And the that that is not something addressed by the Biden administration. It's not seriously taken uh, as a problem. Really is dispiriting. And I think the other element of this that I thought warrants emphasis is that the um, we're, we're talking about the way in which the Iranian regime. Um, has so th these are the first hostages right these are the first hostages iran has taken nor the first that we've swapped money for there was another deal a major one that involved about 400 million dollars around 2016. but you don't really have to go back that far i mean it's relevant to do that and we should look back at some of the history but i just want to point out that while this deal was being negotiated in the last 10 months or so as they were dealing with, we want these prisoners and giving the names of them where they're imprisoned in Iran, Iran captured somebody else <laughs> in the process of negotiating. And that became a point of contention. We want to include that person in this deal. So the deal wasn't even concluded before Iran went out and got a, captured another prisoner or hostage in order to leverage them for further gain. So the idea that this would not fuel more of the same kind of behavior is also delusional. And, and as I said, it, it, it's almost farcical that it happened in the course of the negotiations that they had to figure out, can we include this fourth person, fifth person, whoever it was yeah, in the deal. So both the, the fact that the money can easily be used for other goals and that this is obviously and, and predictably gonna uh, encourage more hostage taking, both of those to me are, glaring examples of how aspects of how this is really in fantasy land. I mean, it's, it's really not at all a taking into account what it is you're dealing with, what kind of regime Iran is. So we, we've talked a bit about, I've quoted one commentator. I, I thought it'd be useful to talk a bit about how this is being reported on. And, and so interesting things you've seen about that. It's so, you put it, it's a fantasy, I put it, it's a, it's a delusion, but it's important to keep in mind that this is enormously consequential. So th this is an enormous evil, I think, that the Biden administration is committing here. And the media, if part of its job is to be um, a check on government, the media should have been extremely critical 
of this deal of and the the justifications are really rationalizations that the Biden administration officials are offering for the deal. There, so it, there should have been very hard pressing questions about this and the of what I've said, particularly for the kind of more what would be considered the more mainstream media. The I watch a lot of NPR, listen to a lot of NPR. The kind of coverage of it there is was startlingly um, non-aggressive, non-probing. Like, really, does this make sense? And if if you think this is in this month, I mean, yesterday was the anniversary of the withdrawal uh, and and then collapse of Afghanistan. The last U.S. troops pulled out um, in in kind of really dire circumstances. I think it's 13 servicemen lost their lives. And to not see it as like, isn't this more of the same? Aren't we just telegraphing to the people in the Middle East that we've given up and we're again um, um, sort of going to turn the other cheek and indeed offer you money when you are attacking us? that the the media doesn't think of it as like this is a very consequential and we need to ask probing questions it it was uh, the atmosphere and i think it's in, useful to contrast it to when the trump administration was in power the way the media asked a lot of critical questions in regard to the administration's explanations for things and and so-called reasoning um, here, it, the atmosphere was basically the Biden administration, Democrat, they know what they're doing. If some critic brings up something, maybe we'll pay attention and ask the government official about this. So, but it's basically, it, it's they know what they're doing unless someone really proves that they don't. And for the Trump administration, the, the burden in effect was reversed. It was they have no idea what they're doing. We're going to ask all kinds of questions to try to expose that they don't know what they're doing. And if they're able to offer some kind of explanation, okay, then we'll kind of grudgingly accept it. And so, and the the standards are so different in regard to the two administration, and it tells you something about the media and the that there's a lot of legitimate complaints about the media. One of the things I noticed reading about this deal is the, there are assumptions baked into some of the coverage that I think, further to your theme, really explain some of why it's it's being covered this way. So one of the things that you find in the reports is that the deal is presented as a sensible step forward to, to a further deal, which would then revive the nuclear, Iran nuclear deal, which was something that was negotiated during the Obama administration and then the Trump administration withdrew from. And so the some of the coverage just takes as a given that that deal was a good idea and that withdrawing from it was a bad idea. And so if, if this prisoner swap opens the door to reviving that original nuclear deal, then all the better. And one of the things that should anyone reading about this should ask is 
why is this an obvious good? It's not, it, that's something that has to be defended. It's very controversial. It was controversial at the time it was negotiated, controversial at the time it was agreed to. And I just want to offer a snippet from one of the articles I was reading uh, just to indicate the way this comes through in the coverage. So this is in an, a report, a long report in the New York Times about the consummation of this deal uh, about three weeks ago. So referring to this prisoner swap, it says the deal, quote, could increase the prospects for further diplomatic cooperation, including the Biden administration's longstanding goal of containing Iran's nuclear program, end quote. So this is, a, if, if you're a looking at this critically, the natural thing to ask here is, well, who could I speak to who has a view about this deal? What would be a perspective on this deal? Is this, is the Biden administration's goal a good goal? Not asked at all. Uh, what would be the consequences of this deal if it went through? What would be, why believe that this prisoner swap will lead to anything besides more prisoners being taken hostage? None of that's being asked. And I think it's, it's as you're saying, it's it's revealing uh, and it, it's really, it kind of presents this idea of there is a cocoon that some people are, are who are working in this space live in because it, it doesn't occur to them to ask this question. It doesn't occur to their editor to probe and ask this question. I think we were, we were, we were preparing for this uh, discussion. You, you brought up the issue of how there was a kind of self-reflection in the media uh, around the time Trump was elected. Uh, I think that's an interesting perspective to bring out here because it doesn't seem like whatever reflection or self-questioning there was, it doesn't seem like it's really had lasting effects. Yeah, it, it, some of, of the kind of leading media outlets after the Trump uh, election victory in 2016 engaged or at least purported to engage in some soul searching in the sense that it was that the Trump's victory took them by surprise it's uh and then they wondered like how could we we've been so wrong about this and particularly how could we not know that there was a lot of disenchantment in the country that it, it, it will often be put kind of in geographical terms that outside the two co east coast west coast in the middle of the country there's very different views than what we hear what we report on what we treat as sort of the range of views in America. And isn't this for a media organization to be blind to this and to not be reporting on this and so to not be helping people in the country understand this, but ourselves being blind to it and therefore um, contributing to the blindness in the country of the, the kind of disenchantment frustrations that we need to do better. We need to think about how to, to be um, more objective in our reporting in the sense of trying to capture the actual range of viewpoints um, and perspectives that exist in America, including with the American electorate. And they purported to, that it's, yeah, we're going to think about this. We're going to try to institute some policies and procedures and so on to make it that this will not happen again, that we would be so taken by surprise by something in America when, I mean, what is the New York Times slogan? We're the, 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 the voice of record or something like that. Uh, the, I think one of the ways they put, so they, they present themselves as 
if you want to learn about what's happening in the U.S., the thing to read is the New York Times. And then it, no, if you, you, can't, you know, don't find that out. So they purported to engage in some real soul searching and to do better in this regard. And when you watch the coverage here, and again, if you try to project what the coverage was like in regard to the Trump administration, it's such a double standard. And that's not to say the Trump administration was good. They should have been asked a lot of probing, penetrating questions. They One should have been skeptical of many of the explanations that they give. And so, so it's not to say that's what was what's wrong is they don't do it in regard to the Biden administration because it's a, seen as more, yeah, like they're more similar to us, have similar kinds of views. Of course, these are the reasonable views. They're not trying to put themselves in the shoes of critics. They're not trying to understand why there might be outrage in regard to this. And if you think, just one last thing on this. Part of what the media should be doing is, is trying to establish a little bit of a context here. And we're, I will go on, I think it's important when we're, to talk about foreign policy, that one has a long range perspective, but just context sort of that is part of the immediate context here. If you've got an administration saying, yeah, we can trust the Iranian regime, we can negotiate with it, um, they're going to use the money for humanitarian aid. At the same time, for months in Iran, what has been going on is widespread suppression and really terrorization of their own citizens. Um, in regard to the veil and in regard to trying to, to, to defy some of the strict Islamic uh, uh, kind of Sharia law and regulation. And, so, and th there's some protest and uprising against this, the brutal suppression of that. And that's a regime in which you can negotiate, you can trust their word and so on. And that the, the media is not asking this about the administration. Like, isn't this completely crazy that this is your viewpoint? That again, it's it's something. It's it, it's such a defect in regard to the media, and it basically my view is they've learned nothing from two thousand and sixteen. Yeah, one way to put this is that this is a regime that's that's beating its own people up in the streets and gouging out the eyes of women who are protesting, and you looking at that are saying. Yes, it makes sense that they would want to spend money on so-called humanitarian needs. So they do not care about their own people. Why think that any money that they acquire will be prioritized in that way? It's it's really a it's a, it's a clanging contradiction. Like you you can't really hold these two perspectives at the same time. So let's widen the context. Let's widen the 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 field of view. And you mentioned earlier the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which was a year ago, the final plane left a year ago. Yesterday, you mentioned the protests in Iran, which I just want to add one detail to that. So that is almost a year since the in, in initial event that triggered these protests happened, which was the killing of Masa Amini, who was a woman caught, uh, arrested for not bailing appropriately. And, and then there were massive street protests and massive in the sense that they were cutting across Iranian society. They were not just women, there were men and children going into the streets. So this is a, a 
incredibly popular uprising in the sense that it wasn't just some segment or some faction. It was a lot of people in Iran were upset about this and were trying to uh, push back against the theocratic rule. And so that's been unfolding in parallel to all the negotiations around this prisoner swap. But if we go further back, I think it's useful to think about um, the character of Iran. So you've mentioned, can we trust them? Can we, can we have any confidence that this is a regime that you can enter into any deal with? And I think that calls into question, what kind of regime is this? So we've, we know going back a long way, this is a, a regime that was founded on ideological program and it is to the core, it sees itself as leading a Islamist movement. It wants to be a leader in that movement. I think it, in, in significant degree, it is a leader and remains one. It's trying to inspire others to form societies like its own, which is taking Sharia or Islamic law as the foundational law of the society and enforcing it in a totalitarian way. And that's been true since 1979 when the, this current regime came into power. And, we, and you said as well, I think it was worth weaving in here that the Iranian regime has been hostile and attacking the American, uh, American servicemen, American interests for decades. And I think that is a, we've talked about that in other podcasts and we've written about it. It's just a context that is almost always dropped. It's sort of seen as a historical curiosity that the American embassy was captured in 1979. There were hostages held uh, for 444 days in Iran and paraded and humiliated. All of that is not a historical curiosity. It's, it's relevant context, necessary context for thinking about the kind of regime you're dealing with. And then layer into this, the fact that at least, in, at least since 2002, when there was uncontrovertible evidence that Iran was pursuing a nuclear program, that's 21 years ago. That's it's a long time to, waffle about what kind of nuclear capability this regime is seeking. And for many years, it was just, there was an evasion about what goals Iran had. And it was, the, the line you heard from a lot of people was, that's, Iran says this is for peaceful civilian ends. And there's no reason to believe that. In fact, all the indications are that if Iran is developing nuclear capability, which it has been doing at least since we know 2002, there was significant evidence that this was underway, why, you, why would you do it in an underground bunker if this is just for nuclear medicine, if this is just for civilian needs? There, there's so much evidence pointing to a militant end here. And that's, this isn't even the whole context of what to think about in Iran, but these are just some of the natural things that would occur to you to put this in as a sort of framing for what's happening with the, the hostages that Iran has taken. And I think if you broaden further still, just to the Middle East or beyond that, I think there's more to say about how you evaluate the situation. And none of that is coming forward. I think the, the we were talking earlier about what is the most sort of long range perspective we've seen in the commentary on this. And some people are saying, yes, this will encourage more hostage taking. And yes, there is some, uh, recognition that this is in, in many ways an echo of their initial hostage taking from 1979. But that has to be systematic. It has to be that you bring that context in and it conditions how you view this particular situation. 
Um, I'm not seeing that kind of thinking being done, definitely not in the administration and very few of the commentators I've seen are approaching it that way. Here's what you, what, what else would you bring into this on cars framing? Yeah. So the widest framing, which we'll come to is thinking of this in the context of nine 11. And that's why the bringing up Afghanistan and what happened in Afghanistan is important here, but even without doing that, because I think that's the widest range and big picture thinking. Like you have to think about not just Iran as an evil regime has been attacking us. And so you have to understand its um, role in 9-11 uh, as the whole inspiration for this movement that, um, and it's, so it's wider than Iran of what our enemy has been and who has been attacking us and who attacked on 9-11. But even if one doesn't do that, to have at least at the level of thinking about it a little bit more in terms of foreign policy, rather than a hostage deal, it's a, that's a, a relatively concrete. In terms of foreign policy, if one understood and explicitly acknowledged, like this is part, our foreign policy is good, has to be built around this, that Iran is an enemy regime, it's declared itself an enemy con in constant words and in constant actions. Like there, you can't evade this. There's no getting around this. It is no longer arguable. That's part of what um, you were talking about a moment ago, that it's an enemy regime. Then even labeling these people hostages is not obviously correct. Why are Americans going to Iran? Um, I haven't read about all five of them, the, like the whole backstory of it, but I've seen some in, in the news. And one, it's they're going back to see family members. And they're, it's, and then, and then they're treated horribly by the Iranian regime. That's a predictable outcome if one understands the nature of the Iranian regime. They treat their own people horribly. Do you think they're going to treat tourists and visitors in a really nice way and so on? It's an evil regime. And in, just in terms of foreign policy, I think American foreign policy should declare certain countries as, look, these are enemies, these are evil regimes. Our recommendation is for no American to go to these places. Um, but if you go to these places, you're on your own. Bad things might happen and may, may, may even likely happen to you. And you can't enmesh us in, now we've got to try to get you out of Iran and so on. And I've seen basically no discussion of why were these people in Iran? I've seen comparisons like Brett Stevens in the New York Times made a comparison to, well, look, this deal has some pros and a lot of cons. And some of the pros are, well, we can't leave Americans in hostile regimes in the hands of our enemies. And it gave a comparison to, well, doesn't Israel try to get um, hostages freed? But their hostages are real hostages. It's like a soldier who's kidnapped by Hamas or the PLO. And then, yeah, the, Israel might do things to try to get that soldier's release if the soldier hasn't been killed. That's very different than an Israeli going to visit somebody in uh, um, the Palestinian territories and gets kidnapped. So, it's, uh, the, so entering into uh, um, an evil regime that is in effect, at war with America. Either 
a foreign policy could even prevent, say, like Americans can't go to Iran, but at minimum, it's you go on your own, and it's it's um, you have to know that that's what is happening, and you can't put the whole country as now we've got a foreign policy issue because there's so-called hostages here, um, and people going to visit and thinking. Yeah, like I should be treated respectfully and, and by like rule of law, as you would think of rule of law in America. That's actually a form of whitewashing Iran, of thinking that why can't I go there and get just decent treatment from the Iranian regime? Well, because it's a monstrous regime and you going there and expecting that is a form of whitewashing that's evil. Just to pick up the thread about connecting this to 9-11, is the widest context. <clears throat> I think what's important in thinking about that is at the time 9-11 happened and many years since then, the typical view of 9-11 from critics of the response and from the advocates of the response is that it was a kind of um, surprise and it was led by Al-Qaeda, which, which is true, factually. Al-Qaeda operatives were the ones behind it, and that the Taliban were hosts to Al-Qaeda. And that is, it's not wrong as a factual statement, but it is really a, it drops the context of what the attack was about. And, it, and dropping context is, is a significant problem here because there's no way to understand what happened in 9-11 without putting it in an ideological context. I mean by that, just the ideas that were animating the people in the planes, the hijacked planes, the, the Al-Qaeda as a faction within a wider movement. And when you step back and you see that Al-Qaeda is one cell, one, one um, faction within the Islamist movement, and there are many factions and many groups, and, and it's a like many ideological movements, they fight among themselves. But what is important in understanding that movement is what brings them together and the, the ideas that they share and the basic goal. And I think the basic goal is to create a totalitarian society built on Islam as the fundamental and exclusive law. That's what the Taliban were doing in Afghanistan in the 1990s. To a significant extent, they succeeded. And the original impetus for this, what gave this whole movement a massive boost in 1979 was the Iranian regime, which did this. It created a, an Islamic society based on Sharia with totalitarian ambitions. And to a significant extent, they managed to enforce religious law as a total system. And when that happened, a movement that was around for about 100 years, the Islamist movement, had been knocking around without much success, gained a huge infusion of encouragement and, and, and boldness and you can't understand the boldness of al-qaeda in its attacks both in 9-11 and the attacks before that in different parts of the world including in, in africa you can't understand that without understanding the way iran energized this movement since its founding and, and in both materially and intellectually and so in that sense 9-11 doesn't doesn't naturally connect for people because they're viewing it in a very concrete way. So if you read the, the, the report of the commission of 9-11, which is detailed hearings throughout the early 2000s, a very long report, Iran comes up in, in sort of peripheral ways as 
some of the hijackers transited through Iran. We think there might be a connection to Iran in terms of supporting some of them. Some Al-Qaeda people found refuge in Iran. We're not really sure. And this is all in the published report. The published report is a joke if, if that's the extent to, to which you think Iran is a factor in understanding 9-11. So I think the, the widest context here is understanding that Iran is this central uh, node in a network, an ideological network, and an inspiration, even for those who find it ideologically abhorrent. So as I said, the factions are at each other's throats many times over minute to sort of outsiders, their minute differences, their, their sectarian differences. But the important thing to understand is the commonality that they have in terms of this is a vision of society and they're realizing it. And I think when you look at that and say, so Iran is the central motivating and inspirational figure in this movement, it has been for decades. And we're sitting down with them and saying, here's $6 billion, you take it, we want five of our people back. What do you think that means? What do you think is gonna happen with this movement? So I think it can, it's unavoidable that this encourages Iran. It doesn't only encourage it in the sense of there will be more hostages. And I think that's a, a safe expectation. I think it's encouraging them in the belief that they've nursed for many years, which is that they can get away with murder and they can be appeased for repeatedly because they're not being understood properly. They're not being treated as the hostile enemy state that they are. To me, that's sort of the fundamental failing here is really not understanding what Iran is, where it figures into the Islamist movement and how that through various steps is inextricable from understanding 9-11 as uh, a, a historic event, a, a catastrophic but historic event that has shaped, it really has shaped the Middle East and shaped American policy for the last two decades. Yeah, it, it, it's so incredibly concrete bound and pragmatic, but it's laced with um, kind of real evasion of what is going on. So, and to get, the, there has to be massive evasion involved, even at a concrete level. So you said it about 9-11, that the, the kind of foreign policy establishment was taken aback by this, that oh, we're being attacked on our own soil and so on. That's in the, just thinking of the kind of more concrete context, that's in a context in which the Twin Towers had already been bombed by militant Islamic extremists a few years ago, but it didn't. It wasn't a very successful bombing, and they the vowed to come back and complete the job. And in that context, they're taken surprised by oh, now it's not a car bomb. Oh, I forget it was a car bomb or a truck bomb for the, the first attack. It's now they fly jumbo jets into the twin tower. Like, but th that you can be surprised by that when they have tried it, tell you they're going to try it again, um, and you're still surprised by it, is there's, you're, you can be concrete bound, but you can't be that concrete bound. You have to be evading it, that we don't wanna add up the pieces. We don't wanna understand what is happening because that would require then that we adopt some kind of longer range policy and principles. Like how do we, 
oppose this? What is it that the dangers that we're actually facing? But if you treat each one thing as one off, then it's okay, we do something about that and so on, and we pursue those five people and we treat it like a kind of criminal thing, and we're not treating it with as the actual threat it is. And that happened, I mean, so it happened with 9-11, it happened with Iran um, and, and, and with hostages. I mean, so you brought up the embassy, but, and, then it, and that in effect what told Iran, yeah, we can succeed in taking massive hostages. The Reagan administration was supposed to be, oh, we're, now we've got a whole different administration that's gonna be um, real opposition. They engage in a, um, the, a, a hostage deal with the Iranians, an arms deal with the Iranians. And if you, it's, okay, our officials don't add up anything, but if you're so delusional to think the other side's not adding up things and saying, okay, well, they're even weaker than we thought they are. They're even more vulnerable than we thought they are. They're even more ripe for attack than uh, we thought before. If you don't think they're they're going to think that and draw that kind of conclusion, it's again you're to be high up in government and so on. It's you have to be evading. It can't just be like I'm too stupid to understand. I agree. I, I don't. Nothing that I have said here should be taken to mean that I think the people involved lack intelligence. If anything, they're super smart people and they have deep knowledge. And that's part of the tragedy is they, they hire people with PhDs and they, they, they hire people with subject matter expertise and language expertise and, and really smart people. And so it's not a lack of knowledge or intelligence. I just want to illustrate the point that you're bringing up about being concrete bound and, and contrasted with the positive. So the, the positive, the thread that you're raising is that formulating a policy is something that you do in relation to principles and principles give you long range perspective on, on the world. They help you understand cause and effect in a deep way and they guide you in action. They, they help you understand, okay, if I do this, this is the likely outcome and, and the, what that means for my interests and my values and the policy is something that has to draw from that so that you have a view that goes beyond the news cycle that goes beyond yesterday and today it, it is as we were suggesting it brings in the widest possible relevant context for understanding what's happening and so that's the sort of the so the positive recommendation for what's missing is a principled perspective a long-range perspective and an integrated perspective and that's just another perspective another way of saying the same point, which is if you're integrating, you're bringing in relevant context, you're looking both across time and across um, different spaces. So I want to illustrate the contrast with that in another way, which is you're, you were saying, I thought it was helpful that we, we think, so our, our foreign policies are not piecing together the, the, the dots and so forth, but the Iranians are. So I want to just illustrate how that looks in fact, so you can, this is all from newspaper accounts I read in the last couple of days thinking about this prisoner swap. So some of the questions that were raised of American uh, representatives and diplomats here were of the following kind. So we're making this prisoner swap and we're releasing these five and this is the amount of money that's going. How does this relate to this other concern that we have with Iran, which is that it's sponsoring recurring attacks on American troops now in the Middle East by proxy forces. 
what's the answer to that? Which is, I mean, that's, that's a good step. That's a step towards piecing together the relevant context. What's the answer to that? The answer to that is that's a separate track. That's the official answer. It's a separate track. Another kind of question that's come up is where we have sanctions on Iran for a number of reasons for in different ways. Um, and precisely because it's going around the Middle East, not only attacking Americans, but also trying to overthrow regimes and, and undermine them and, and encourage militant Islamist groups. What do we do about that? What, how does it relate to that? Answer, it's a separate track. Okay, well, what happens to, we do this deal and don't we think this is going to feed in separate track? Okay, but go back a few years when the nuclear deal was negotiated and agreed to 2015, 2016, there's a lot of commentary around it. One of the questions that was asked at the time, and this was for people who are interested in the Iranian protest movements that currently have been unfolding. Mm -hmm. I think this was a betrayal of those people. They were, uh, the question asked at the time is, well, we know as well that Iran is violating the rights of its own people on a, on not in secret out in the streets we see it it's very clear will the nuclear deal put iran on the hook for doing something different about that separate track separate issue what about everything that comes up what about its ballistic missiles program extending the reach of its ability to to wage war separate issue everything that is raised that would push you towards thinking in a wider context, not the widest, not the most relevant, but at least a step towards a more integrated approach, a perspective that brings in relevant data. The response is it's a separate issue. It's siloed. It's, it's fragmented. And that in a certain, in an important way is the epitome of being concrete bound. It's like, these are all separate things. We're, we're not dealing with them all at once. And we don't want to deal with them. We don't want to think about this problem when we're trying to solve that problem. And let's just clarify, there are cases where you take a problem apart and try to solve it in pieces. This is not an argument against doing that. What this is doing, what, what, the, way I'm, the way to think about this and what I'm characterizing here is it's a militant refusal to see these as one problem and understand that they're aspects, they're not parts, they're not separable. You can't really separate out the fact that Iran is supporting Islamist groups all over the region or trying to overthrow regimes or trying to acquire ballistic missile technology, nuclear issue technology, and that it's crushing its own people. These are not separable issues. These are all part of what it means to think about Iran. Insofar as you silo them and fragment them and refuse to integrate them, you're hamstringing yourself. I think that's what we're seeing right now, that this is how you end up reaching a deal for $6 billion in exchange for five prisoners uh, or hostages. And this is, I, I don't know if you could parody this. Uh, it, it's so absurd to treat it like this. It, it, it's taking everything that ought to be put together and throwing it out and splintering it. And you, you can't really function like that. And I think we're seeing the consequences of that in the last 20 years plus. Yeah, and that's part of the, what is so depressing about this incident that it's, you have to see it in its wider context. And part of its wider context is how much they're deliberately trying not to see it 
in its wider context. And that's part of what, how we got to 9-11. I mean, it's a, it's a significant part of how we got to 9-11 to never add up the, the evidence to, to point to, okay, well, we're facing a real enemy that requires a response, not a P and it requires a, um, a response in force, not in appeasement that if we appease and appease and the, the, to, to you said you couldn't parody it, but I think, it, which is right. Like if you, I think if you put it in an artwork and so people would say, no, you, this, it's so unrealistic. This is not how things function, but it actually is how things function. And part of the, um, to, to understand how this is possible, you have to see the combination of uh, what people are taught in the universities and how that manifests itself in actual action. Because I think it's simultaneously both things. It's massive evasion and concrete bound or pragmatic thinking. And they learn that they're taught. So you brought up that these are intelligent people, many of them, they have advanced degrees, PhDs, part of what they're taught in these programs and so on is look at each thing piecemeal as concrete and separate, isolated from everything else as you can. Just focus in on that specific concrete problem. They're taught like that. And then, well, yeah, but reality doesn't work like that. It's not like you've got all these separate things that don't interact and that you don't have to try to think like, what's the, if I do this here, what's the implication for what's happening over here? And what's the causality involved? So they're taught not to think about that. Reality, in effect, pushes into their face. Yeah, but you have to think they are connected. The nuclear deal and the, this, they are connected. And to evade it, what they do is rationalize it. And what you said, oh, separate track, separate track. That's giving an abstract justification that they learn in school. Oh no, but well, I'll think about that later and that's a separate thing and isolated from everything else. So, and that's what it means to think and, it's and yet they know at some level, no, that can't be right. And that's why it's both, it's both like a pragmatic concrete bound and evasiveness. And it's the, what they've learned serving as rationalization for something that they know deep down can't be right. I think we should draw some of these threads together and, and offer some um, concluding thoughts now. And one of the things I'm taking from this is that this is the kind of mentality. I don't think it's ever gone away, but after 9-11, it went, I think it had a, uh, it sort of went into the shadows a bit, but it's, it's sort of still part of the established view of how to deal with foreign policies, this fragmented approach concrete bound, evasive. What I'm taking away is that we're, we're going back to where we were before 9-11. This is the kind of thinking that was evident in the, the years leading up to the first attack in 93, the second attack in 2001, and the, all the steps in between that. Uh, and I think that's a, and as you, you characterize it as we'll deal with these piecemeal and more like a police action I think that's really the drift that we're on right now is not seeing the problem in its holistic frame. And it's, it's, 
one of the worst things about, I mean, we've talked a lot about the, the lessons of 9-11. And one of the things we've said is that the lessons haven't been learned, that, that there's not really understanding of what went wrong, how to do it differently. I think this concrete case of the prisoner swap understood broadly is just one more example of how there isn't learning about what happened pre 9-11, what was wrong about that, what we did wrong subsequently. And I find it really dispiriting. I think it's important to speak out of it. I think it's important that people understand what is going on and never let it uh, go by uncommented or un unchallenged. Um, and I think that this is, you're characterizing it, aspects of this, is it's something that, it's a defect that is rooted in a methodological problem. It's how, how people are taught to think in university and in the, pragmatic element of it is it's it's ultimately a, an, a a failure of ideas a failure of the philosophical assumptions and framework that people are bringing to this along with some moral uh, cowardice i think that is re reinforcing of that uh, and and that's really the climate we saw pre 911 I, I find that really and we're a few weeks from the anniversary of 911 uh, here so it's I think that's one of the things to take away here is that we're really going back to the, the, the kind of intellectual climate and, and mentality that was really dominant in the lead up to that period. So I think it, it, we're in a dangerous place in that respect. Yes, uh, I have the same view that it, it reminds me so much of pre 9-11 and this from another perspective of the well, let's put it, the Institute's response to 9-11 was very critical of George Bush and the, and the, the response and the immediate response to 9-11. We, we got a lot of criticism from supporters and so on that, no, the, the Republicans and Bush, they're trying um, and they're, they're, taking military action and we should be supporting this and so on. Our perspective, which unfortunately has borne out, I think, is this was an opportunity that 9-11 um, could not be evaded in the way that could one could evade and that was repeatedly evaded. What was happening in the Middle East, what Iran was doing, the way in which militant Islam was being appeased and emboldened when it was happening in the Middle East, it was easier to evade. When it came to American soil on the scale that it came in 9-11, you could not evade it and it could not be business as usual. It was like something we've been doing has to be wrong. We need to do something new. And you had a supposed articulation of, we have to change principles and policy. And something like Bush's so-called forward strategy of freedom it's a, was attempt to um, articulate like, no, we're going to have a new policy. We're doing something very different. We're not just tinkering at the margins. And if that policy is all wrong, which it was, um, what it's going to lead you to is disaster. And it's not, it's not inevitable, but it's not surprising at all that the response would be, well, this is what happens when you try to have a, 
policy and principles and so on and try to think of it as a bigger picture something going on no, no we have to go back to treating things piece by piece concrete by concrete and so so that the it, it's in effect what's happened i think is look we tried having a more principled longer range vision that was a complete disaster that brought us uh, iraq and a quagmire in afghanistan I Biden and like I'm withdrawing from that, and we're going back to what we always did. Um, and it, I don't think it's imminent, but it because this kind of enemy is not that powerful and that competent. So it's I mean it's decades of appeasement before 9/11. But what we're setting up now is yeah we're going back to that, and it's what you, when you project out. It's going to be appeasement after appeasement, emboldening them. And you could see in 20, 25 years, the second 9-11. Well, let's, um, let me add a punctuation mark to that. So not that it needs it, but the, one of the things we were talking about before this uh, podcast recording is just what is the, so that's where the U.S. administration is sort of intellectual climate among people thinking about foreign policy and just the inevitable consequences of an appeasing, evasive approach. I think it's useful just to mention then where we are 22 years since 9-11. So Afghanistan, as you said, the last plane left a year, two years ago yesterday, and the country is back in the hands of the people that we that America fought for 20 years to free it from. So the Taliban are back and they're as brutal, if not more brutal today than they were in the past. Saudi Arabia, which we were, as an organization, we, we were outspoken about Saudi Arabia as a significant part of the Islamist problem, as a major funder of Islamic groups all over the place, it's proselytizer. And yet it's a, it's a country that America treats as, a, as an ally. Where is Saudi Arabia today? It's stronger. It's much closer in some ways to the U.S. Biden went back on his uh, alleged promise to punish Saudi Arabia for some of its actions. That's not happened. Saudi Arabia, in many ways, is in a better position than it was before. And it's escaped any consequences for its proselytizing and support for Islamist groups all over the place. Iran, we've just been talking about Iran in depth. And the one thing that we didn't stress, but I think is worth emphasizing here, is that it's had all this time to, to continue its nuclear research for attaining capability. We don't know where it is. And the, it could be that it's much closer than we, we know, or could be farther away. But what we do know is that this is not a regime that you want to see go nuclear. It's really bad. And it's had a long time to proceed secretly and in contravention of various agreements, not surprisingly. So that's all happened. I think the, the other thing you mentioned the other day on coverage, I think is is not getting enough attention and I, it's worth bringing out is that Iran has it, it wormed its way into the Ukraine-Russia conflict, right? So Iran is providing drones to Russia and the US is among the countries supporting Ukraine with uh, military technology and, and, and weapons. So in that sense, you could look at that as it's another front of conflict between us and Iran. So where are we 22 years since 9-11? It's not a good place. And it's, it's, it was foreseeable that this would be not necessarily the concrete configuration of all these uh, countries and their 
relative power. But the fact that this would not serve American interest, the kind of response that we had uh, in uh, post 9-11 and the way we, the American government and the establishment in the foreign policy space were thinking about this, all of that was predictable to lead to really bad outcomes. Uh, so, so I think that's where we are. I, I want to mention then, so as one resource for people that can, you can explore more of our perspective is the Institute's been very vocal on this for decades now. One of the resources I'd recommend is a book that Ankar and I put together with short writings about the response to 9-11. It's called Failing to Confront Islamic Totalitarianism. What went wrong after 9-11? You can find that at the short link we put on the screen. You can read it in PDF for free. It's inexpensive on Amazon. There's Kindle, there's paperback. You all can take a look at that. It has writings going back to right after 9-11, including a major statement from Leonard Peikoff in response uh, to the attacks that was published as an advertisement in New York Times and Washington Post. So I think that's a place to look for some of the philosophical analysis we've been putting forward. Another resource I want to recommend is a book I put together, came out about five years ago. It's called What Justice Demands America in the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict. It's a very different issue, at least it seems that way, relative to the conversation we've had. But part of what I think is relevant in that book is the role of Iran is discussed in the region and its relationship to America. And more broadly, part of what one can gain from it in relation to the topic of today's podcast is the book indicates what it would look like to think, you know, in a principled, integrated way about foreign policy in the region. And that necessarily includes thinking about Iran and its place. So that's a, a resource for thinking about what might a positive framework look like in contrast to the fragmented, concrete bound and evasive approach we've been criticizing today. All right, that's everything I had to share. Any final thoughts from you, Ankar? Just this is a depressing topic, but it's not a reason to turn away from it because it's a very important topic and it's possible to get a better foreign policy, but only if the citizenry really demands it and demands that we have a better um, approach than what we've exhibited. And the idea of going back to our pre 9-11 policy should horrify people. And so it is, it's depressing, but that's not a reason not to think about it, argue about it with people and bring it to the, to real discussion. And this is part of why like I'm so, what I view the media so bad here as it's such an important issue. And to default on really pressing this and pressing government, really, like this is what you're doing. Um, that's, that's the job of the media. Well, we'll see you all next time. We have an episode next week. I think the planned topic is Ayn Rand's critique of original sin, a deep philosophic and highly relevant issue. We hope you'll join us for that. Until then, uh, see you. Bye. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.